Revelation chapter 20. Um, I wanted to thank you all. I was going to say it early. Thank you all for prayer for our family. Um, it's been an interesting month and uh, just stuff that, you know, if it, for all three of you who watch the video that goes out with the newsletter each month um, for the month of January, the topic was if the Lord wills, where James says, uh, don't say tomorrow we'll go and do such and such uh, because your life is brief but instead say, if the Lord wills, we'll do such and such. Um, I really was not anticipating that to be something that I needed to really uh, hold, hold tightly for the month of January, but the Lord has willed that Rachel has cancer and he has willed that she has worse kind of cancer. Um, he has willed for our family to walk through this again. And um, uh, I wish I could tell you exactly why he's chosen or the, the, the immediate reasons. I can tell you that he has chosen this for our family um, in order that we might become more like Christ. And uh, for that, I am thankful. Um, but pray for Rachel. She has really good moments and she has not so great moments. She's a lot like her dad, um, where Alyssa is like her mom. Rachel is like her dad. So she sees worst case scenario and uh, has a tendency to start spiraling down the rabbit hole emotionally. So I encourage you to be in prayer for her. Um, the healthcare system, anybody who ever says to you, we want healthcare like Canada, you do not want healthcare like Canada. Absolutely, you do not want it. And um, uh, it's, just, it's just, I could tell you all kinds of stories, but Rachel is finding out firsthand how um, bad it can be. Uh, there's an old saying of you get what you pay for, and it may be free in Canada, but you're getting what you pay for, and which may be nothing if they decide they don't want to do it. Uh, you, don't, you don't get the option of a second opinion or anything like that. But uh, uh, I appreciate you being in prayer for, for them, being in prayer for the girls. They're all little ones watching this, and uh, there's anxiety and fear for them. And, uh, and thank you for praying for our family with Terry's, the passing of Terry's dad. Um, we're sad, but really happy. Um, he was a good man. Uh, he loved the Lord. And uh, especially in the last few years of his life, um, he just spiritually flourished. And so we're very thankful for that. Um, and we know we're gonna see him again. He listened to every Sunday sermon. So it's kind of weird. This will be the first day I'm preaching that uh, he won't have heard any of it. So, uh, and I really don't think he's up in heaven waiting for our service this morning. I really don't think that. So uh, he's got better things to worship uh, around with other people. But uh, I do be in prayer for the family at this time as well. In a moment, I'm gonna be reading verses 11 to 15 of Revelation 20, and this will finish out the chapter. But before we read it, before we look at it, I wanna take you back to a night, um, and it was the night before Jesus died on the cross. And if you remember, Jesus was with his disciples and they were, they were having uh, a last meal together. They were, uh, he was with really his closest friends. It was the disciples and uh, some other people that were followers of his. Uh, and as you think about that night, I want you to remember that there was a certain sadness that kind of hung in the air as you read the story. It's just kind of a sad moment as they eat that Passover meal together. And amongst those friends, um, as Jesus spoke to them, he spoke of a betrayer, which was Judas. He spoke of a denier, who was Peter, and he spoke of his coming death, that he was going to leave them. And in the midst of that sadness, Jesus encouraged his friends to not be afraid. If you think of John 14, he says, um, don't be afraid, peace be with you, my peace come I give to you. And, uh, and in the midst of that, he told them that the Father would give them another helper who would be with them forever. And he called that helper the spirit of truth. And Jesus promised that this one would teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that Jesus had said to them. So Jesus was making promises to them right up to the end. 
And he also promised something else about this helper, which is less known to many Christians. Uh, many people know the term comforter, that Jesus would send the comforter, or he would send the advocate, or he would send the spirit. But there's something else that this helper would do. And that was, Jesus said that when this helper comes, he would convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment that this helper would come and convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we could take a, a deviation from what we're gonna talk about this morning and just talk about the idea of who is the one who um, accomplishes salvation in a person's life. And I'll just say, it's not you. It's not your great presentation. It's not your great arguments. It is simply speaking truth, and the Holy Spirit uses truth to convince people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But Jesus went on to explain these things. He said, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. In other words, there's not gonna be any, uh, Jesus' example of righteousness is no longer going to be available. And third, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And in this passage that we're about to read, we have come to the end of the Holy Spirit's work considering, concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. What Jesus promised, that he would send the helper, that promise is fulfilled in the, the, the final aspect of that promise is fulfilled in Revelation 20. When Jesus left this earth, the Holy Spirit came and one of his tasks was to convince people of their need of salvation, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Revelation 20, we see the culmination of that. The judgment has come. And God, through the pen of John, reveals to us the end of those who stand guilty of sin in final judgment before God, who stand guilty of sin without righteousness and without hope. And this passage that we're about to read, as I've talked to people over the years about Revelation, and people have made comments, this passage is possibly one of, if not the scariest portions of Revelation for the average Christian as I have interacted with people and heard their comments or questions from Revelation. But for me, Revelation 20, the end of it here, is not the scariest passage in the Bible or the scariest passage in Revelation, but for me, honestly, it's the saddest. There are a lot of passages that are just sad passages in Scripture. When Paul writes to Timothy and says, everyone has left me, he's near to being executed. It's the end of his life. His head is going to be chopped off. He knows that it's coming. He said, my life has been poured out or is about to be poured out like a drink offering. And then he says to Timothy, everyone has left me. I'm alone. That's one of the saddest portions of scripture. As Jesus turns to Peter and says, you're gonna deny me three times. And as Jesus, as Peter denies, in that third denial, we're told that, that Jesus looked at Peter after his third denial. It's really, it's one of those things we, we kind of jump over in the story. But Peter is actually within eyesight of Jesus as he denies him and swears, curses, that he does not know the man Jesus turns in the midst of his trial and looks out the window at Peter and catches his eye. That had to be just a devastatingly sad moment for Peter. But here, this is an incredibly sad passage to me because for every person who stands at this judgment, they didn't have to be there. They're there by choice. They're there because of what they rejected. They've rejected the mercy and grace and love of God, and so they stand here in awesome judgment to be condemned to the lake of fire. So it becomes one of the saddest passages to me. Let's read it together, 
beginning in verse 11 and reading down through verse 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. As we've we've journeyed through Revelation, over and over again, we have witnessed the wrath of God being poured out on his enemies. And if you remember very early on, I told you in Revelation that as a believer, you should not be afraid of the things that are coming because all of the evil, horrible things, or not evil, but all of the horrible, terrible things that are gonna happen to people in Revelation are happening to God's enemies. It is the final wrath of God being poured out on his enemies. The day of the Lord has come. What What Joel, the prophet Joel prophesied hundreds of years before this, now thousands of years, before the coming of what's going to happen in Revelation, he spoke of the great and awesome day of the Lord and how it would be a terrible day for God's enemies. And what he forecasts is beginning to happen here in Revelation. As we've read through Revelation, we've seen fierce lightning and awful thunder just rock the earth. Giant hailstones have pummeled the earth's surface and massive earthquakes have leveled its mountains. Plagues and demons and famine have tortured those who rejected God's mercy. And Jesus has with the word of his mouth and by fire destroyed all who oppose him. Over and over again, these scenes of judgment are happening to the inhabitants of the earth who are opposed to God. And now, at the end of all of that ongoing judgment, the world has come to be, has come to its final judgment as John sees this massive, brilliant throne suspended in space. Imagine if you would, and I think this is an accurate imagery that John wants us to get, is blackness and no stars, and no planets, just blackness. And in the middle of that blackness, suspended in air or suspended in space is this incredible, massive throne. And I want you to, for a moment to think back in Revelation to the thrones we've already seen. We've had several throne room visions that John has shared with us. Think about what they were like. They weren't a white throne on a black background. They were not monochromatic. They were brilliant and spectacular. Remember the emerald rainbow, the, the, the full 360 degree rainbow with all the colors of green that wrapped around the throne. And remember the sapphire crystal sea that comes out from God's throne, that brilliant blue that came out, and the orange of the fire that rests on the the crystal sea. And around the throne were all kinds of magnificent, powerful angels, different categories, different forms, But in the midst of all the the glory and splendor of God's throne room are angels, myriads and myriads of angels who are singing and praising God. There's the peals of the music that's coming from all around as John sees these things. And then he sees saints collected with 
The angels, people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered with the angels in praise of God. It's beautiful music. It's beautiful praise. It's beautiful colors. And it's also not times of judgment. It's times of God with his people and with his angels that he has created being worshiped. But in contrast to that, strip it all away. And when it's time for judgment, all you have is a massive, brilliant white throne on a dark black background. And there's no music and there's no angel singing. It's quiet. We're told that the earth and heaven have fled away. The earth and the heaven have fled away. They're gone. Earlier we heard of a moment when the sky, in the midst of judgment, the sky rolled up like a scroll. That would seem to indicate what we see from earth with the blue sky. It filters out um, some of the heavens at night. I mean, during the day, we can't see some of it during the day because of the brilliance of the sun and because of the atmosphere that's above us. And at night, when the sun goes down and we can see out, we can see the myriads of galaxies and stars. And now with the Hubble telescope and the new James Webb telescope, we can see beyond that to to hundreds of millions of light years away to see new galaxies that we've never seen before. But in this moment, what John sees is not only is the sky gone, but the earth itself is gone and all the stars are gone. The decreation that was prophesied has come to be. The creation has been groaning ever since Adam and Eve sinned. And at this point, and it's been devolving, so to speak, ever since they sinned. Not saying that, please don't walk away and say, oh, he believes in evolution. Devolving is a specific word to help us to understand that it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Until one day, God erases his creation. The Apostle Peter in his second letter writes regarding what Joel called the day of the Lord. And he says it will be a day when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is that day. What we're reading in Revelation 20 is that day. There is a view that the world, the earth, and the heavens will not be destroyed, but rather they'll be renovated. The sin will be removed and they'll be renovated. Um, And those arguments are made from different places. I struggle with that because of what Peter says. Peter specifically says the earth will dissolve. The heavens will dissolve with a loud noise. To me, that sounds like the undoing of matter and antimatter and a complete destruction of everything that exists. This this vision before us here in Revelation seems to correlate well with, with Peter's words. And standing before this massive throne suspended in space are people whom John calls the dead. The dead. When you think of dead people, I don't think you think of people standing up on their two feet and able to communicate or be communicated with. Yesterday was the funeral of a young woman who worked for me at the college. She graduated from Northland. She died of cancer this past week. She's been battling liver cancer for years and she died this past week. And yesterday they live streamed her funeral. And I didn't watch all of it, but having done a number of funerals myself, I'm very familiar with the process of the, what goes on in the funeral home. But at some point in the service, they will close the casket. In some, in some f- services, they leave the casket open through the whole service 
with the person, the body lying there on the silk and the cushions and it comes up around them. And uh, at some point, the funeral home director will come to that casket and he will take the, the silk parts that drape over the outside of the uh, casket and he'll fold those back in over the person. And then there's some other things from down below and a part that stays covered, that part of the casket stays covered. They'll pull some things up and they'll, they'll tuck them all in there. If there's any last things to be buried with the person, they'll put them in at that point. And then the funeral home director will close the casket. And then if you watch closely at that point, you'll see he has a little key and he walks around the casket and locks it shut. It, it, it creates a seal there. So it can't leak is the idea. You know, as Karen laid there and I watched it on live stream for a little while, I never saw the funeral home director as he started to tuck the, 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 the coverings of the casket back in. I never saw him lean down to Karen and say, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna put this on top of you. He didn't lean down to her and say, Karen, is it okay if I put this on top of your head? I know it might be a little uncomfortable. I don't have any place else to put it. The funeral home director talked to his assistant. He never talked to Karen. And it's obvious why. Karen's dead. Her body's dead. And yet here, we have imagery of the dead standing before God. So how can that be? These people that are called the dead are part of the second resurrection, what Revelation calls the second resurrection. The first resurrection has already taken place. The first resurrection took place when Jesus returned uh, right before what is the part on the millennium in Revelation 19. They are what are called the dead in Christ and they were raised from the grave, what we call resurrection. I was talking to Terry this morning and saying, I don't know if I'm gonna cover this this morning. Let me just mention it now. I've decided to mention it now and we'll talk about it again next week. When you die, you leave your body. You leave your body, according to what scripture says. To be present with the Lord is to be absent from the body, for those of you who know that verse. So when you die, you leave your body, and as a believer, you go to be with Jesus. As an unbeliever, a person who's rejected the gospel of Jesus and rejected the sacrifice of Jesus, you go to Hades, a place of torment, according to Luke 16, where the rich man died and went to Hades, also called Sheol, also called hell, also called the grave. But it's a place of torment, but regardless, your body is somewhere else from where you are at that point. My father-in-law was cremated. I plan to be cremated because I, Terry's going to need as much money as possible after I'm gone because we don't have much after I'm gone. And so it's $1,300 for full cremation services versus five to $10,000 for embalming in a nice wooden box that no one's ever going to see after you're put in the ground. It's gone. When you go to be with Jesus, you're not in your body. That body does not come back until the first resurrection. And I'll talk about that a little bit next week and the implications of that. It's important that we understand as someone said yesterday, and I appreciate what they say, and, uh, and I understand what they're trying to say, but Karen is not in a new body. Karen's body is in the ground, buried yesterday. It is at the first resurrection that Karen's body will rise from the dead and her soul and spirit, her, the immaterial part of her will join back to the material part of her. Here, at the great white throne judgment, what we have are all of those who died without faith in Christ. 
they have died for millennia over the history of the world. They have died, some of them, in these last portions of the judgment of God. Some of them have just recently died at the great battle of Armageddon. But they have all died without Christ, and now their bodies have been raised in the second resurrection, and their bodies have been joined with the immaterial part, and they stand before God in a sense alive. We would say alive because their bodies are moving and functioning, but in another sense, they are the dead. Their bodies are not glorified. It's really important to understand this in relation to the final judgment and being in the lake of fire. Their bodies are not glorified. When Christians are raised from the dead in the first resurrection, their bodies are immediately glorified. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that which is corruptible will put on incorruption. And that which is mortal will put on immortality. But for those who do not know Christ, their bodies will be raised in corruption and mortality. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But what I do know is if they died with disease, they will be raised with disease. If they, if they died with emotional struggles, they will be raised with emotional struggles. All of their depression will raise with them. All of the pain in their body from broken, broken bones or joints out of place, however that happened in the previous life, their bodies will be raised with that. There will be no removal of sin from their bodies. Are you getting my point? Death will have been no escape from the disease and the bondage of sin that they experienced in their life. And being raised again will simply be the person being reunited with all of the things that are problems for us with our bodies. These bodies will still feel pain, they will still feel grief, lust, and all that sin has brought on the creation. And while they seem to still be alive, they are dead because they do not have the life of God in them. They do not possess eternal life. When Jesus says, I came to, to give life and to give it abundantly, that's only for those who accept Jesus and bow the knee to Jesus and repent of sin and turn to Jesus. For those who have not done that, they do not have life in them. They do not have eternal life in them. And the best way I can think of to describe them, although this may be in error, but I would use the term the undead. They have been raised from the dead. Their spirits are in them yet they are entombed in broken bodies. I don't know, you know, I've seen pictures of zombies. I've never gotten into the whole zombie thing. Some people really think that's fun. But from what I've seen of zombies, I think it might be kind of similar to what's going on here. And the final judgment now begins with, this with, this, with these people as the book of life is open. Books are open. And then another book is opened, we're told in verse 12. And that book that is opened is the book of life. What is the book of life? Depends on who you ask. There's a couple different views of what the book of life is. One is that the book of life is a list of all the living on the earth. A list of all the living on the earth. And I personally, I think there's two different books of life. And, and that's what I'm going to explain here. So when Moses said to God that if this is going to be true, then blot my name out of your book, 
What Moses was asking God to do was kill him. Moses did not want to go forward without God and was saying, instead of, instead of killing these people, kill me. Take my name out of the book of life. So it would be the idea of blotting would be, uh, you couldn't erase the ink in their days. So if you were going to write something and you didn't, you didn't want that word to be used and you wanted a different word, you'd take the ink and scribble it out. Like you did when you were in high school and you wrote notes to the girl in class and you passed it over to her, and, and, uh, but you said something stupid, and so you used lots of squiggly lines to r- r- mark that out so nobody could see what you said that was stupid. Anybody else here do that besides me, or is that just me? Is that Maybe that was a generational thing that we did, our squig- squiggly lines, because later the rest of you younger people just texted stuff to each other, and then it was too late. You texted it, and then it was gone, and you couldn't scribble it out. You couldn't blot it out. David says to God, don't blot my name out of your book. I don't think David was afraid that he would lose the salvation of God. He knew that what he had done with Bathsheba was worthy of capital punishment. He should have died for what he did. He murdered her husband and he raped her. Capital offenses in the law, he should have died. And he pleads to God to forgive him and not blot his name out of the book. He doesn't want to die for it. He's pleading with God for life. I think that is one of the books of life. There's a second book that's talked about in the Bible, and especially in a revelation of the Lamb's Book of Life. You're familiar with that one? We've talked about it. The Lamb's Book of Life is names written there before the foundation of the world. In other words, the Lamb's Book of Life contains the names of all who would be saved all who would trust in the blood of Jesus. God knew who they were, and those names were told in Revelation were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the world was ever created. Those names were established and existed from there. I think there are the two different books, and I think that the book that's opened here is not the Lamb's Book of Life. And I think that is true because in the visions, it's very clearly spoken of, of the Lamb's Book of Life. This is just called the Book of Life. Whichever it is, if it is the book of the Lamb's Book of Life and, and those who uh, possess spiritual life, it's quite clear that all of you, those standing there do not possess spiritual life. So it could be the Lamb's Book of Life. I would argue that it's the Book of Life, that these are the dead. And, and the undead, so to speak. And so when the book of life is opened with the list of all the people who are alive, actually at this point, none of these people would be listed in that book because they are called the dead. John refers to them as the dead. So the first book that's opened is the book of life. And none of these people, as they stand before the throne, ready for judgment, are in that book. What would be the significance if they stand before the judgment in the book of life, the living? What would be the opportunity available to them at that point if they are in the book of life and they are still alive? What could they do? That dead people can't do. If they're alive, there's still a chance for them to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. If they're not in the book of life, they have nothing else to appeal to except their works. Look what I've done. And if you remember, Jesus tells a story of people that stand before his father in judgment in the future, and they say to him, don't you remember what I've done in your name. You remember that passage? Remember, I I cast demons out. I, I did this, I did this, I did this. And they are appealing to God on the basis of what they've done, their works, their religious activities. And God says to those people, what? What's his response to them? I never knew you. Get out of here. Depart from me. You who work sin. 
I never knew you. So if these people were truly alive in the book of life, the record of who's alive and dead, they would have opportunity to repent. They would have opportunity to trust Jesus, but they're not there. And so when the question comes, I don't think God is actually going to ask this question, but if he wanted to, he could say, why should I let you into my heaven? And the only appeal they have is the, what they've done. So notice what, the second, what they do then. The book of life is open. They're not found in the book of life. And the dead, verse 12, were judged by what was written in the books according to what they were done, what they had done. It's repeated in verse 13. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And how does that work out for them? How does that work out? They've been, they've been brought back from the grave. They've been brought back from Hades. They've been brought back from the sea. All of them gave up the dead that were in them and they were judged. John wants to make sure we understand that they were judged according to what they had done. And a judgment according to what you have done results in the second death. Anyone's name at this point who is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And none of these people, there's not a single one who walks away because none of them are in the book of life and all of them are being judged by what they had done. So let me just suggest for a moment that if anyone has the idea that when they stand before God and he weighs their deeds and, and they're hoping that their good deeds are gonna outweigh their bad deeds and God will say, you just made it, man. You just got in there. If you hadn't helped that little old lady across the street yesterday before you died, well, that would be bad for you. But because you did that, you squeaked by. You just made it. You kicked the field goal just as time ran out. Good job. Enter into the glory and joys of my heaven. But the fact is that all of these dead stand before God and the books are open and the record of their deeds is done. And because they were not found written in the book of life, all that was left for them was to be thrown in the lake of fire. That seems pretty non-debatable that your works don't work in the end. Your works are not going to get you in. It makes sense when you consider what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3. It's one of the most clear, direct arguments of why all human beings stand guilty before God without Christ. He states clearly that without Jesus, all of our works are like filthy rags. And when you study what is meant by the word filthy rags, it's not even proper for me to talk about what it means in a mixed company on a Sunday morning. It's foul. All of our works, Paul says, are like filthy rags. Paul says all of us have gone astray and all of us have turned others to go astray. One by one, each of these individuals is judged guilty. And each of them hear God say, depart from me, I have never known you. And each of them is sentenced to eternity in the lake of fire. 
Though God had offered them salvation in the blood of Jesus, that offer was rejected, and sadly, now it is too late. There is no second chance. God doesn't end up saving everyone. God doesn't end up giving everyone a second chance. If your heart was hard and rebellious against the mercy and love of God, while you walk this planet as a living person, your heart will remain rebellious and hardened against the living God, even when you stand before him. And then what is this lake of fire? There are those who argue that it doesn't even exist and instead refers to a final annihilation. And all I can say to that is, you have to do some pretty good mental gymnastics to come to the conclusion that the Bible teaches that that you're just annihilated when you're done. Others would argue that a loving God would not condemn someone to eternal punishment, so in the end, everyone is given a second chance and is saved. But neither can be true. If there is no hell, if there is no lake of fire, and Jesus was either extremely confused or a liar because he spoke very specifically about hell. And he spoke very specifically about the coming judgment. And he spoke of it in terms where people are eternally tormented. They're tormented by fire and by worms forever and ever. If he's confused, he can't be God. If he's a liar, Jesus can't be God. And you can, you can argue that Jesus was wrong, but then you might as well chuck your Bible and you might as well chuck anything that has to do with Christianity and religion because the person who it's named after was just dumb or just trying to get results by scaring people. Here are some thoughts that I would share about what the lake of fire is like. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that it is a place of absolute darkness. By the way, Jesus spoke of hell 11 times in the Gospels. It seems like it was pretty important to him. In one way or another, he made reference to the lake of fire directly or to hell. But it's a place of absolute darkness. Jude and Peter use similar language when they speak of gloomy darkness, oppressive darkness. It is a place where you cannot see your hand in front of your face. I don't know how many of you have been in that kind of a place. I've been a few times in my life. It is weird. When you hold up your hand and you, you, you know where it should be positionally by your body, but you can't see that puppy and you can't see anybody around you, it's just a very weird, unsettling experience. It's not natural to us for most of our lives. But this will be a place where you cannot see anything because it's dark. Never again will an individual in the lake of fire see a sunrise or even see the flicker of a light. Jesus also tells us that it's a place of continual burning and he tells us that it is a place that burns with sulfur. I'm not an expert on this, I did some research. I have the degree in science but that was four years ago and I've forgotten most of it. But this fire is a sulfur in some way it does not produce light, but it re releases sulfuric gases. If you've ever smelled a rotten egg, you got a pretty good idea of what sulfuric gases smell like. And the lake of fire will be a place where you are constantly burning but never consumed. Just like Mount Sinai, when Moses walked up on it and the mountain with God's presence was on fire but not consumed. It's like Moses when he saw the burning bush where, the, where it was on fire but it was not disappearing, it was not being consumed. It was both on fire and experiencing fire and yet not being damaged by the fire. But in this situation, the lake of fire, you will be continually consumed feeling the pain of fire 
and never finally being consumed. Years ago, when I was going to go into physical therapy, my uncle, uh, who was a hospital administrator at the time, called my dad and said, before he goes into that full blast and does all the schoolwork for it, I'd like him to work in a physical therapy unit and just know what he's getting himself into. And, and so, you know, I told my dad, tell him I love that. In Denver, they had Spalding Rehabilitative Clinic, which was the number one physical therapy unit in the United States. And I was living in Denver, so I got in there and I got to shadow the guy who ran that unit. And he did physical therapy work with people. And he told me at that time, he said, um, most of our patients are quadriplegic, paraplegic, or burn patients. Sports medicine was not the thing it is today. So he said, you're gonna see a lot of people who are very despondent and very depressed because of their situation, and you're gonna see a lot of people in pain, and you've got to be able to work with that. And I was like, I can do that, you know, I'm 21, I can conquer the world. So I worked with them, the paraplegics and the quadriplegics didn't bother me, but there was a patient one day who had been working on his car and he had crawled underneath of it and his legs were sticking out and the radiator and the engine had been warm, had been running, so the radiator fluids were hot and the radiator hose burst and sprayed that hot fluid right into his thigh and burned a hole about that big all the way to his bone. And he'd been in the hospital for uh, a while as they worked on that. But one of the things that they had to do every day was take him from his room and bring him into the PT unit. And they had this big stainless steel tub that was filled with warm salt water. And they would lower him into that salt water. And then they would have to peel off the dead skin from inside that wound. And the, the doctor, before, you know, he would go over the case with me on each one before that guy came in. Um, he said, this guy is going to sound like he's in a lot of pain, but he's not using the pain blocking techniques that we've taught him. So don't be moved by his uh, experience of pain. I realized later that he had to do that in order to do his job. He had to convince himself of that. But I stood there as they lowered him down in, and then they had to wash off all the silver, uh, there's a uh, ointment that they used, they had to wash all that off of the wound, and then they started picking off the dead skin. And I will tell you, I have never heard a human being scream the way that man screamed. And I went home and I told Terry that I think I had my first experience of what the screamed of the damned in hell are like. And I told her, I can't do this. I can't do this for the rest of my life. I'm not that person. But will it, be, it will be a place where people are screaming because of the agony. It will be a place where people are cursing because of the bitterness that's in them and the sense of injustice that they were sent to hell. It will be a place where those sulfuric gases not only smell terrible, but when they go to breathe in, those gases come in and choke them. Sulfuric acid chokes you, it burns inside of you. It's a lake, it's a lake of fire. That means there's no solid ground. It is a burning lake of sulfur and you never can touch bottom, and you never can touch sides. For eternity, you will be trying to stay above the surface, only to breathe in the sulfuric gases when you come above the surface. And because of an attempt to stay afloat, so to speak, it will be a place of utter fatigue without rest, or respite. It's a place where sin is in full control of them and unrestrained by the grace of God. The lake of fire is not a place where sin is removed 
and gone. That's called the new earth. The lake of fire is where you still experience all of the activity and slavery of sin in your body. If you feel like this point in life, you struggle with sin that you wish you could be free of, consider that you're not experiencing the full onslaught of sin in you right now because of the grace of God that restrains some of it. And imagine spending eternity with all the lust and all the cravings of sin with never a moment of any satisfaction. There are no drugs, there is no alcohol, there is no sex, there's no distraction. It is just the constant internal consuming of the individual by the cravings of sin. There, this place is a place absent of the comfort and sensed presence of God. I have prayed many times for people over the years who are going through difficult things and I prayed for their loved ones and asked God to give them peace, to give them comfort, to give them a sense of their presence. We don't deserve that as Christians. Definitely as people who reject Christ, we don't deserve that. But I believe that God can give comfort and peace to even unbelievers at times. But while God will be present, don't ever come to the conclusion that God is not present in the lake of fire because God is always present everywhere. So he will be there, but they won't sense him. There will be no comfort. In the darkness, surrounded by others, ironically, there will be a sense of absolute loneliness. If you've ever been in a crowd and still felt lonely, imagine what the lake of fire will be like. Billions of people screaming and cursing and yet feeling like there's no one. As creatures who are made to thrive in community, I would say that this might be the most horrific experience of all in the lake of fire. There is no peace. The souls of these people will always be gripped in fear. All of the bitterness and resentment, and as I said, the sense of injustice will rule their hearts. Anger against God will thrive and drive their thinking. Hatred will abound. It will be a place of chaos. And I would suggest that all of what I have proposed in reality will be far beyond what we could ever imagine. And that's why this passage is so sad to me. Because it didn't have to happen. It didn't have to happen because God in mercy and love sent his only son to live on this earth and die to pay for your sins and mine. No one has to go to the lake of fire. God has called all humanity, every single person to repent and believe that forgiveness of sin is found in the blood of Jesus. God has declared that whosoever will may come. You say, what about your reformed theology? Oh, I'm still reformed. Whosoever will may come, but they won't. But God doesn't just, God didn't just issue a call for some to believe and repent. Romans tells us he issued a call to all to repent of sin and turn to Jesus. All that is required, all that God requires is to believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Paul writes that in Romans. If you will believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Paul says you will be saved. It's simple. There's no reason for anyone to ever burn in hell. It's stupidly simple when it really comes down to it. 
And so my question this morning is, have you trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of sin and acceptance with God? It is so simple. Billions of people will not do it. On the other hand, this morning, for those of you who have believed, I want to remind you that there is nothing in this passage that indicates you will ever stand in this judgment. Is there a judgment? Yes. There is the judgment seat of Christ where rewards for his people will be given. But this judgment in Revelation 20 is for the dead. So don't fear this. John in 1 John 4 says, the perfect love casts out fear because there is fear in judgment. And what he's arguing there is completed love. The completed love of God for his people casts out fear because he will not have them stand in this kind of judgment. There is no reason to lay awake and wonder as a child of God if you're gonna get whacked around someday by God. I would consider, I would encourage you this morning to consider what God has done for you. Consider the horror from which he has rescued you. You might have been sitting there thinking, Pastor, this room is filled with a whole lot of people who confess Christ. So why did you go into so much detail? Because I want you to understand what you've been rescued from. It's that bad. And God in mercy and love saved you and you will never experience that. Consider all of the love and goodness God has shown you. And as you consider these things, I want you to understand that whatever you experience now in the brokenness of this world is what Paul called momentary light affliction. The lake of fire is affliction. It is eternal. It is horrific. And Paul says, what we experience now are momentary light afflictions. Cancer doesn't seem like a momentary light affliction. And when you lose a loved one to cancer, there's a trail left. And there's an emptiness that's left. But these moments pale, these moments of heaviness, these moments of sadness, these moments of grief pale in comparison to the eternal torment of God, of hell. And I will say they pale in comparison to the eternal glories of the new earth. And with that in mind, for those of you who have trusted Christ, I want to encourage you to be steadfast, unwavering, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Love Jesus, obey Jesus, and spread the message of the gospel of Jesus for the glory of God and the good of others. Let's pray. Father, I just praise your love for us. For those of us who are here this morning as your children, that is a gift that we did nothing to deserve. We are not better than others, and for that reason you saved us. We are all people who once followed the prince of the power of the air and encouraged others to do the same. But you who are rich in mercy, through faith in Jesus, because of your gracious work in our lives, have saved us. I praise you and I thank you for that. I thank you that those of us who are your children will never experience hell in any way, shape, or form. And we are not experiencing hell on earth now. It's not even close to what's to come. And Father, I thank you that we can look forward to the new earth which is yet to come in this book.
and the beauty and the joy and the peace and your presence that we'll experience. Help us to live in light of both what you have saved us from and what you have saved us to. And Father, if there is anyone here this morning that believes that their works are going to be enough to get them into your heaven, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will do the work that Jesus promised and convince them of their sin, convince them of their need of Jesus' righteousness, and convince them of the coming judgment. In your Son's name I pray. Amen.